Welcome to Bickering Peaks with Aiden and Lindsay. This is Bickering Peaks, uh, and we are here this week to discuss two... Count them, two. Two Mark Frost projects. Uh, both first, from 1987. Yes, they, One was a TV movie, like a Hallmark mm-hmm. movie, actually, yep. I think it was. I think that's how it was labeled, yeah. And one was a big budget, you know... <laughs> Hollywood Hollywood flick. success, actually. It wasn't too terrible at the box office. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scared Stiff was the Hallmark film, and... The Believers was the uh, Martin Sheen-featured... Uh, the Hollywood feature. feature. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Uh, and yeah, both came out in 90, 1987. There's a lot of similarities between the two, yes. which we'll get into. That's kind of what we thought as we were watching them. We're like, this is going to be one episode because yeah. otherwise we're just going to repeat everything, everything we say. Because we so. yeah, there's like not just a lot of similarities. There's a lot of similarities. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, there's there's some obviously production value differences and some other quality of life and viewership, uh, you know, uh, elements to the feature film versus the TV movie, but um, but the, they're, the they're thematic very, similarities yeah. and and plot similarities mm-hmm. that are quite quite um, striking, actually, yeah, hard to miss. So, yeah. um, so I guess we'll dive right yeah, in. Yeah, let's with, start. Let's start with. We watch them out of order. They well, yeah. I, both of them being released in 1987 means we're not you know years out of order but months out of order yeah. uh the believers came out slightly before scared stiff did mm-hmm. but we watched scared stiff first so we'll talk about that one first um this as we said was the hallmark film that uh i don't have I, I, nobody of great fame was in this no film. no um but it follows the the story of a young single mother who is a uh, kind of pop star, but who hasn't released anything for a while because she had some kind of a mental breakdown and was institutionalized for a period of time. And she's ended up uh, in a relationship with her former psychiatrist mm-hmm. who is moving her into this beautiful home that he's purchased that used to be a plantation. Yes. And in we find one of the out. the Carolinas, I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So you find out in the cold open, quote unquote cold open, I guess, of the film that this was a place where there was some kind of sacrifice made and an evil slave owner who was after his wife and child and obviously cruel to the slaves that he owned. And the slaves uh, conducted some kind of ritual, magic ritual to protect the the wife and child Mm -hmm. and... It didn't work, or the, well, the charm worked, was broken, yeah. and the wife and child died. Yeah. And so this happened 150 years ago, and now this couple has moved into this home, and the husband, the the boyfriend, ends up slowly being possessed by the spirit of this evil slave owner, and the yeah, the wife ends up, or the girl ends up having you know visions of um, things that happened in the past happening to her now. And then they seem to actually happen to her. Yeah. Now, there, there's, it goes off quite into a surreal bit. At it does, the end. which uh, is interesting. Like there's yeah. some it, lines blurred between dream and, and reality. But uh, yeah, in, in whole, in total, it was, um, that's basically the story. That's I mean, the there's, the story, yeah. there wasn't much, I mean, we read into it quite deeply. We thought, okay, the, the main actress, we thought maybe she would be a descendant of 
one of the like uh, an illicit love affair between the slave owner and one of his slaves or something hmm. or that he was descended from the slave owner or something but there was none of that there was well, nothing the, very like at the very end there's there's a little tie-in that the head psychiatrist is the plantation owner's great 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 grandson or something like that that's true um but that's like tacked on at the end yeah. the ending really doesn't make much sense um it, and it the whole thing feels like a Hallmark movie. So it's it's not, it doesn't have like a you know, a biting pace or witty super witty dialogue or anything. No. It's it's very much made for, you know, Your the TV Sunday at audience. six o'clock yeah. uh, time slot. Lots of gore that happen maybe mm-hmm. not Sunday six o'clock with that much. Well gore, yeah, that's true. Maybe it's more of the eight thirty <laughs> time night? clock. Yeah. Either way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, like lots of gore and jump scares and stuff like that that um, you don't really associate with Mark Frost. But that you kind of see how that maybe came into play in some of the later stuff he did in Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. But and, um, and just to be clear, uh, he was one of three writers, yes. I think, credited on this one. So this was not by any means uh, entirely his own project. But right. um, there are still some elements. And we definitely saw a lot of connections that we'll talk about uh, shortly. Um to Twin Peaks, to other works, to uh, well, to the believers, obviously, um, but to his interests and yes. his his uh, desire to talk about uh, the supernatural and mixing it perhaps with uh, the scientific world of uh, psychiatry in this case. And well, and also science. in the believers as well, mm-hmm. there's a lot of psychiatry going yeah. on there. But also there's this this interesting um, social justice bent that I think we've seen in Mark Frost. Uh, if you follow him on Twitter, as we've mentioned before, he's very social, con- socially conscious, and and that shows in mm-hmm. you know it's very clear that there are bad guys and there are good guys, and the bad guys are doing things that you know liberal minded people would probably yeah. not um, yeah condone not, not, not approve of yes <laughs> so yeah you know it's uh, so that's that's very interesting to see contrasting that with the believers uh, that film is. Uh, First of all, it's a, lot, a bit longer. Uh, the TV movie was about 86 minutes yeah. or something like that. The Believers is about an hour and 45 or so. Yeah. Uh, and so it tells the story of, kind of similarly, a, a single father this time, yes. played by Martin Sheen. Uh, in the first scene, we see his uh, wife die, uh, getting electrocuted by a, a malfunctioning coffee pots right. while she stands in some milk. That Martin Sheen spilled. It was kind of a it was kind of a brutal scene to watch, actually, yeah. in, in a way. Um, but anyways, so his wife's dead. He takes his kid. They moved to New York because that's where he went to school and he has some connections there. Um, and then he tries to set his life back up together and he he gets a job uh, counseling uh, police officers for NYPD. Um, he moves into a nice brownstone apartment. It's like three floors or something crazy, which would be billions of dollars now. Uh, <laughs> but he gets a cheap rent uh, through a lawyer friend of his. Uh, he meets his landlord, who he kind of falls for. Landlady. This landlady, yes. Let's be clear. Uh, let's be clear. It was uh, 1987. There yeah. was none of this. No. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he uh, falls for her. Um, and then through work, he's uh, exposed, and through work and through his son, he's yes. exposed to this cult of uh what what have what's this magical group well called? the the there's two groups i think that are really uh influential here there's um a, a group of african well it's run by one man yeah. who who is from africa mm-hmm. and we find out his backstory throughout the film but he's in charge of some some kind of child sacrifice cult that is intended to help 
the wealthy yuppies mm-hmm. in New York City achieve power and, and fame and money and everything um, by sacrificing their children, they're able to gain these things that they want. Um, on the flip side of that, there's the Santeria uh, practitioners who are largely from Afro-Caribbean communities, so Cuba, Puerto Rico, um, I think in this film, mostly Cuba. Mm-hmm. And they're on the other side trying to protect the children of these communities from harm through their Santeria uh, practices. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, he's introduced to this through um, his son's interaction with what appears to be a a shrine or an altar in Central Park that he he ends up finding a bead on the ground that seems to link him to this, uh, maybe being the next chosen one who will be sacrificed. And through his work by meeting Jimmy Smits, mm-hmm. who plays a cop who has been undercover trying to uh, trying to figure out why these children are dying, um, and he uncovers too much. He's also a practitioner of Santeria, and he slowly loses his mind and ends up. Uh, well, we don't know if he totally loses. No, his mind, I think I think yeah. part of it is that he's been infected or been uh, targeted by this this, uh, this evil magic, evil yeah. magic yeah. the bad magic from this one yeah. man. Um, and, and he ends up dying or killing himself, killing himself. basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But this is all how, how Martin Sheen's character, whose name is uh, Dr. Jameson. Yeah. But we're, we're he, probably going to call him uh, <laughs> President Bartlett because the fact that... No, President, Aiden will call I him will President, call him President Bartlett. Bartlett. Because the fact that the President Bartlett and President Santos were both on screen in this film is momentous to me. Uh, when, they, when the two of them were talking, I was like, wow, this is what presidential acting feels like because <laughs> oh, it is God. just it was bang on and they, they both did a really great job just just to divert for a second uh love them and i'm gonna call them uh president santos and, and now you all know our next podcast will be called bickering west wing and it will just be aiden yeah. just talking about the west wing because clearly <laughs> there, there he loves no the show so much and you love it too so <laughs> i do love don't it, pretend but. Anyway, um, yeah, so so Dr. Jameson gets wrapped up in, in this um, investigation, and it becomes clear that the people that he surrounded himself with, his, his wife's, his dead wife's friends and colleagues, she was an anthropologist, mm-hmm. they are part of this cult as well. And they were introduced to the cult. They were the ones who brought it to America, it seems, through their sacrifice of their child when they were in... I don't remember if they it even was, said I where think it was. He, he did at one point. No, no, it was the East uh, Africa. I think it was Somalia, oh. uh, which doesn't really line up that well. I but don't we'll, think it was Somalia. I, well, at the last, when uh, they drug, at one point, uh, President Bartlett gets drugged by the man who he thought was his friend. Um, and the, the guy's describing his, his adventures in uh, in Africa. Well, okay, so the anthropologists are there in Africa traveling around and their son gets sick and they realize that he's not going to make it, so they sacrifice him anyway. And then riches and are bestowed on them and the tribe so this boy the young boy at the time who later comes to america and becomes the leader of the evil cult um becomes their friend and their hookup for this circle and uh so they're the leaders of this cult which just seems to me very very convenient uh, convenient that that mm-hmm. dr jameson slash president bartlett yeah. would be um thank you <laughs> would be linked not only by coincidence with his son, but also through his wife's circle of friends and, and his, his work, work and, yeah. you know, everything but tied anyway. together nicely. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so that that's that movie in a nutshell. Um, that one it was written as a book first. It yes, was called The Religion, the Religion I, think, I believe. Yeah. And so this was adapted by mm-hmm. Mark Frost for the big screen. Yes. And but he, he also had an executive producer no, credit? Associate, associate producer. producer. Yeah, so yes. he actually he got an AP credit for it. And that was, um, he, I think he said it was one of his first times producing probably since, well, in a film. For yeah, sure. yeah. So, um, you know, this was a kind of big, a big deal. Kind of a big deal, for sure. But it was interesting to watch them. And we did watch them fairly close, like within a couple of days of each other. And uh, they both, there are so many similarities between yeah. the two films. I mean, they both deal with some kind of African ritual um, involving, well, well, I don't know, you know if, if in yeah. um, Scared Stiff they had animal sacrifice, but definitely in The Believers there yeah. was lots of animal sacrifice. Yeah. Uh, but you see, you know, it's dark out and there's a fire and there's, you know, dancing yeah. people around yeah. a fire. Yeah. It just seemed like very... Um, stereotypical very stereotypical kind of 80s bullshit right and uh so and and for that to be contrasted with or contrasted by um like upwardly mobile middle class white Mm -hmm. americans who are trying to find their way in the world after hardship um it seems like i don't know i've seen so many films you've probably seen so many films listeners you've seen so many films that are like this it just seems so cliche at the time i can't speak to how that would have felt in 1987 yeah but yeah this might have I felt mean, fresh <laughs> but it does speak to a kind of um societal shift i think that we mm-hmm. were seeing at the time in the 80s um but we'll talk about that in a second are there any other similarities between the two films that um, really well, jumped out at you you did mention it already kind of the the moral um Frostian element, I guess you could say. Uh, it is very much, um, you know, the evil, the evils of slavery coming back to haunt America, the evils of their own, uh, their willingness to sacrifice their children coming mm-hmm. back. Um, evils so, of colonialism. Yeah, exactly. You yeah, know, yeah. And, and that in, in kind a kind of, of weird way. But yeah. it, at the same time, it kind of pastes over a lot of those. I mean, it's really just like, oh, yeah, those mystical Africans, look at them. They're, yeah. They're, they can curse us evil whiteies anytime they want. It was, it's really... Well, I mean, to reduce it completely to, I mean, the fact that we don't even remember the country that they come from. I honestly don't even remember if they named the country. That I'm pretty sure they happy. did in in The Believers. And Scared if I did watch the opening twice. And okay. so I do remember it was the Ivory Coast. Okay. Um, but they look very similar. Yeah. We, we can talk about that a little bit more, but I mean, there, there's a concept between the coast and East Africa, which, which is where I'm pretty sure the believers uh, that are, that scene was set, but they're filmed very similarly. Well, and yeah, and it, it just speaks to that idea of um, otherizing, mm-hmm. otherizing the the other, you know, yeah. and just and just making it so foreign. Yeah. And what is more foreign from Manhattan or modern? North slash South Carolina than, you know, the jungles in the heart of Africa, right? So, I mean, you're dealing with a lot of really um, very racist stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. I mean, it's it's tough today to watch it. Um, I I imagine at the time people didn't really, they they weren't as concerned with that, although that growing social consciousness movement and, you know, with the civil rights movement having reached so many uh, amazing achievements in the 1960s and mm. then seeing how things had kind of in, stalled, out, stalled in out in the 70s and 80s with, you know, inner city crime and um, drug wars and stuff like that decimating inner city populations, which is how people would codify yeah, black, black populations people, yeah, or, yeah. you know, Hispanic, quote unquote, mm-hmm. populations um, to conveniently encapsulate them as this large block of people 
that could then be, you know, kind of pushed aside. Yeah. And, and otherwise. Into, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, turn into another group that you yeah. can just say, oh, they're all like that. And, it's very yeah. easy to, yeah. to kind of gloss over that and mm-hmm. say that they're, that they're all this way or all that way. And that's the essence of racism, right? Yeah. So um, the fact even that a lot of those characters, people of color, the actors, uh, the characters they were playing didn't have names that you, we heard um, is just another yeah. way of, of kind of dehumanizing. Yeah, what? Did the bad guy and the believers I don't have think a name? He did. I don't think he That's did either. That's what I'm saying. So I mean, that was oh, you know, yeah. it's just it's disappointment after disappointment on that scale that mm-hmm. really bothered me. Um, yeah, you're right. That was very kind of painful to watch mm-hmm. in a way because mm-hmm. it was it was so dated, and I don't think Mark Frost would approach that way now at all. No, of course not. No. But um, it's kind of the way that people did at exactly. the time. Exactly at so, the I mean, time that was looking the at it from viewpoint. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Which is sad to think about, but yeah. that that was completely acceptable at the time. Yeah. So kind of re- let's remove ourselves a little bit and look at it anthropologically, mm-hmm. maybe, and say this was kind of acceptable. Yeah. Um, yeah, for you sure. You were going to talk about psychiatry. Yeah, well, and, and mental health. I mean, that is definitely another connection between the two. Uh, the you know, there's a there's a mental health practitioner in both. Uh, the ma- the main male character in both of them is this, is uh, in that profession. There's um, also people who are suffering from the ill effects of, of their mental health. Yes, and uh, in the, the believers, it's it's very. Uh, yeah, well, and I guess in both, there's there's a bit of a blurring between is the is the magic of Africa uh, really at play here or is it um, or is it just in their heads right and that's that's another uh, interesting theme that I think Mark Frost likes to to tackle um, generally um, you know the the it brings back to the Twin Peaks uh, discrepancy of you know is it just the evil the men do is Bob real was he just in someone's head um, is and, all of that what makes Nadine super strong yeah, and have all of those things going on is it what gives uh, Margaret Lanterman her abilities yeah. or Carl Rod his abilities yeah, is it yeah. Red Room Black Lodge stuff happening or is there some kind of inherent um, mental health yeah, thing, thing that's, that's going, going on, on. yeah and, and obscuring that in a in a form of magic or mm-hmm. in a way that we interpret as magic mm-hmm. um, and here it was uh, both of them actually kind of wound up especially at the end, kind of weaving back and forth between, you know, mm. a hard kind of scientific uh, viewpoint and then accepting that the magic really does happen. Because in The Believers, there's a few scenes where um, the the black bad guy who's uh, the mystical man, uh, at some points he does seem to do things that are quite magical. Like he, he can see, uh, mimic someone else's voice perfectly as, yeah. a, as a young child. He can also kind of disappear and and uh, reappear at yeah. will. Yeah. Um, He's also kind of like at one point overwhelmed by uh, some tribal drumming, which was a really painful scene to watch. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then in uh, Scared Stiff, there was a lot of there's a whole kind of climax of the the film seems to take place maybe in the female main character's mind. She's kind right. of like in this hallway and she opens a door and then she's in Africa and then she sees something going on there and she gets scared and she runs back into the and doorway. She's in the mental hospital and she's again. in the mental hospital or... where she was when she was getting treated. And, yeah. and so she flits back and forth and there's all this like... Um, surreal imagery appearing mm-hmm. like the the piano that she set up at one point chases her down this hallway right. with someone playing with the the evil colonial guy or evil uh slave owner playing it as it chases her right um so and you kind of wonder like is this just in her head and then after everything's kind of done um and she's uh she's 
kind of beaten the bad guy and, and killed her boyfriend who was trying to kill her because he'd been taken over by the spirit. At the end, she's in the mental hospital and her son's visiting her. So mm-hmm. maybe was the entire thing in her head the right. whole time. Kind of lends, leads you to that. Or maybe it was real and she's yeah. just broken by this crazy, traumatic, magical experience. So both movies had that. Uh, you you as had well. that in in at the end of the Believers as well with uh, the landlady who ends up being uh, Dr. Jameson's New, paramour, yeah, I guess, yeah. um, becoming traumatized through uh, her own kind of quasi possession. She gets taken over and and she has this. It's actually quite harrowing Ooh, thing yeah, to watch. It reminded gross. me a lot of those books. Um, scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. I don't know if you remember those books. No. I used to take them out from the library all the time, and they had the most horrific illustrations. Oh. And there was one about a zit that ends up popping and spiders come out oh, of it. Oh, that's exactly what it that's is. That's exactly <laughs> what happens in here, is that <laughs> her, her compact case is... Um, Tainted in some yeah, way. Yeah, there's like a spell is put on it, and when she uses it, it ends up causing this cyst to grow on her face that erupts in these spiders burst from her skin mm-hmm. and it traumatizes her so much that at the end of the film she ends up becoming a Santeria quote-unquote practitioner um, even though their life seems to be going back to normal and I think she's pregnant at the end yeah, so there's like um, further bonds between Dr. Jameson and this woman um, but she's also now you know sacrificing goats and animals on this altar in their barn Yeah, and so it's like has the is there a magical connection that is going to help them or is this all part of some you know for her in her specific case is this some kind of delusional behavior that uh and and him as a psychiatrist as a man of science um who's a lapsed catholic Mm -hmm. uh for him to try and grapple with that at all but now also having to grapple with it in his own family with his wife who may also be pregnant with his child um that's why the ending of that film is so ambiguous, I guess, in a sense. It's it's like, but the fear and everything that's happening, it's 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 all on him, and it's all focused on him as the main character, which, you know. Yeah, that's how it is. That's yeah, how it yeah, is. Yeah. But so yeah, it's just interesting that yeah, you're right. There's like a blurring of magic, Versus, magic realism, and yeah, yeah um, and like scientific, yeah, yeah, damage perhaps that these people are experiencing. Yeah. 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 Um, so there's quite a few differences that are worth mentioning, yeah. though, too. Um, number one is, I did mention, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it again, uh, the production value and the overall tone of it. Yeah. Uh, the Scared Stiff is, again, it's a Hallmark movie. Uh, you likened it to, like, uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Yeah, well, it reminded me a lot of, of those, like, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s films and TV shows, and even up to the mid-90s, like, with scream and stuff like that which Mm -hmm. are purely for shock value but um yeah it had a very like canadian made for tv feel to it and i think that's just all hallmark (laughs) films have that i i just get this sense that these were made by the maybe not quite the national film board but like cbc for sure yeah Um, but the american equivalent obviously yeah yeah. so hallmark yeah but um it's uh it yeah it had a, a like a very low budget but also um it progressed so uh, exactly as you would expect. Yeah. So there's a formula there that mm-hmm. that um, that I recognized from like Goosebumps books yeah. or yeah, Are You Afraid of the Dark episodes where yeah. there's like a haunted object and yeah. that object slowly becomes to uh, or comes to infiltrate the mind of the protagonist. Mm-hmm. And in this case, in Scared Stiff, it's the, this piano. Yeah. She's a musician. She's a pop star. And the song that, that yeah. she's recording... Yeah. 
also happens to have the same melody as a song that this plantation owner, slave owner, wrote for his wife. And or plays something. in her dreams or something. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, as the story progresses, it just becomes, the line becomes more and more blurred. And, it, I mean, it reminded me of dozens of those yeah. TV shows and books. But. Yeah, exactly. And there's a talisman that can save them and they have yeah, to put them together. And, exactly. Yeah. It's R.L. Stein to the max, yeah, right? Yeah, but, really. Um, and whereas The Believers, uh, it does have quite good production value. It, I mean, again, it's in New York, similar to The Equalizer. Um, and it was very well done. Although some way. of it, I mean, there was a shot of a building very clearly that was City Hall in Toronto. Yeah, it's a so, very distinctive <laughs> building. And I'm like, oh. That's Toronto. That's like, Toronto, we've yeah. been there. That's, yeah, that's, yeah very clearly <laughs> Toronto City Hall. But we couldn't, I couldn't find out where the it was filmed. It said it's produced made in America but yeah. that maybe that was just a stock footage shot of some yeah, big building yeah, yeah, but sure. uh yeah and, but yeah I mean and there's you know it has a bit of the gritty in New York like uh you followed the uh housemaid who I don't think we talked about but she's the main Santeria that's how we're introduced to Santeria is yeah. that she's pr- uh trying to protect uh what's his name again uh Bartlett's Bartlett's son uh <laughs> <laughs> President Bartlett's son uh she's trying to protect him with some spells mm-hmm. and and some uh um, yeah, charms, charms and stuff and, like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so we follow her on the subway, and it's very gross '80s <laughs> spray paint everywhere. <laughs> New York subway, um, and you know we follow her, and that's how we meet the Jimmy Smith's character as well, yes. um, because they're part of the same community of yeah. uh, Cuban immigrants who also who practice, practice Santeria yeah. in this very dilapidated inner city, very, very different worlds away from like the Upper West Side mm-hmm. of, of, of Prison Barlets and everything. Yeah. Where Dr. Jameson. Dr. Jameson, sure. Lives uh, with his family. Lives with his his son, yeah. Um, but it had, I, I mean, you had big, big name cast too. You had Martin Sheen, you had Robert Loggia, you had um, Jimmy Smits, obviously. So, I mean, this, this wasn't, uh, yeah. it just wasn't a Hallmark film. You yeah. can tell. And it, and it made, Returns like it, it did well in the box office, and yep. I think a lot of that is due to it tapping into some very um, relevant cultural concerns for the day. I mean, this was 1987. This yep. was kind of the height of the satanic panic stuff that was mm-hmm. going on. Um, which, for those of you who don't know or don't remember, there was this period in time where people legitimately believed that there were satanists and. Um, anti-christians i guess running around sacrificing children and molesting them and doing horrible things to them and this was like a legitimate cultural thing that needed to be stopped yeah Yeah. Yeah. so i mean it and i've read people likening it to to like the mccarthyism Mm -hmm. witch hunts in the 50s right like this was serious there were uh, there was a very famous case in the late 80s maybe early 90s of like uh a daycare center where the mother and son were accused of molesting like 50 some kids and and this is when kind of the satanic panic collapsed on itself because the stories that these children were telling were just they they were too fantastical and too coached and rehearsed like there wasn't enough for it to to be for them to be uh convicted mm-hmm. so they were eventually um acquitted of of these charges and charges stuff, and everything yeah. but it just goes to show that that this was so legitimate. It was so real, and there was so much ink and airwaves. I mean, Oprah and Donahue and yeah. Sally Jesse Raphael did talk show hours, hours and hours and hours on uh, Satanism in America and what's happening with our children. And it seems like it it kind of came out of this notion of, you know, the '60s were were there, and they had this promise of like. 
utopia and mm-hmm. spiritual enlightenment. Everything was going to be great and we were going to make everything better. And then the 70s happened and none of that came to fruition. And by the 80s, you have people like Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan who are hearkening back to this this glory time in the 50s and, and 40s when, you know, the white picket fence was was the ideal. And and that's what everybody was was nostalgic for and contrasting that with what they actually had they were looking for reasons why they didn't have that the 50s anymore and it was easy to blame yeah satan it mm-hmm. was easy to blame the other it was easy to blame the the urbanization of america i mean we've talked about that before too in in yeah. in the podcast that i mean with everybody moving into the cities you have this mix of cultures and ethnicities and people from all over the world coming together in very close proximity. So in a place like Manhattan or, or New York, New York City, um, it would be very easy to cast these characters and, and, and put them into these groups, like we said, and blame them for the things that are going, going wrong, right? Yeah. To scapegoat and ostracize as a result. And that's a lot of a lot of the time what happened, but I think that's what we're seeing in these films is that it's just a response to this idea that there was an other. There there mm-hmm. were things that were going on that people didn't understand. And they were blaming this other for that. Mm-hmm. And the media of the time was just reflecting that back to them. Yeah. And and it's it's uh, another instance of that that was coming up in the eighty was in the eighty story was um, repressed so- sexual childhood trauma was yeah. was like a, another really big panic um, and eventually I think it was again in the early nineties it came out that in a lot of cases the people who were you know saying oh my father molested me came, came to that conclusion after talking to their therapist for 20, 20 60 hours and yeah. the therapist saying well maybe this is it and then they had it planted in their mind that this is, oh, that would explain why all these things have happened in my life. And then they created and imagined um, these incidents of, of sexual childhood abuse. Yeah. Um, and that was another kind of moral panic that, that came up out of this this wellspring of, of having to confront sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some ways it helped because legitimate uh, survivors of sexual abuse had, you know, it was, it was less stigmatized to come out and, and you know, seek help for that. Right. Um, but at the same time, it kind of... <laughs> There was almost a bubble in the market of sexual childhood drama, and everyone kind of uh, rushed forward with, to that conclusion. Uh, a lot of psychologists, and getting back to the, the psychological aspect of these uh, movies, uh, it was, you know, that's where a lot of people kind of rushed to because they're like, that. it was what was in vogue. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was, again, a bit of a panic because, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, it overinflated the, the, um, the incidents of that happening. Um, and it led to another moral outrage and well we have to do something about well, this well I mean and then, the FBI yeah. did step up and, and they were prosecuting child sexual abuse offenders um, in record numbers and it, and it was a time when this was first kind of recognized as a thing that happened it's not that that children weren't being molested before it's just mm-hmm. that nobody talked about it nobody, nobody yeah. did anything about it yeah. and so in the 80s and 90s you had you know for the first time you know federal authorities taking it seriously so i mean that also contributed to it i Mm -hmm. think that there were a lot more instances of people saying well maybe did this happen and then and then also having you know shrinks quote unquote Mm -hmm. being uh less stigmatized as well Mm -hmm. and that being like you said in vogue Mm -hmm. so the combination of that is really what creates like you said this bubble that that comes up and then 
yeah. creates this yeah. mass panic where, I mean, certainly there is reason to panic because there yeah, were children who were being yeah, molested was, and yeah. were being hurt, but it wasn't the the mass um you know, yeah, thing that yeah, they were trying to make it out yeah, to be. Yeah. And it certainly wasn't being caused by Satanists or yeah. <laughs> um, any other uh, occult kind yeah. of group. Yeah, and, and these movies really do feel like they owe a lot to the Satanic panic, as you described it. Because uh, it really does, it taps into that. It's not Satanism per se. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I think in some ways it's a lot worse because it's just like, it's the it's the black Satan. It's the African right. Satan that, that they kind of it's, touch It's into. just non-Christian yeah, religious exactly. practices. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting because Santeria itself is not exactly is it, yeah. non-Christian. Yeah, in, in the believers, they, they specifically say that it is uh, an offshoot of Catholicism. Yeah. Um, but you looked it up and it's actually, it's a syncretic faith. Like yeah, it exactly. It's, from, it's a combination of of this faith from um, like Caribbean, right? Well, it, that's where it where it blended, okay. right? But it started with with um, I believe the language, the century of language, is an offshoot of Yoruba. Okay. So it's coming from Africa, mm-hmm. and then it's mixing with Catholicism, and it's becoming something new. And that's that's where that syncretic element comes in. So century literally means. Um, worshiping saints like that's what mm. the that's what the word means it's it's the observance and, re- and worship of the saints but they have different names um than they would in yeah. catholic tradition and there are these ritual aspects to it which again were were at odds in the 80s and 90s with court cases being brought against century practitioners because they wanted the the right to sacrifice animals and animal rights groups were saying you can't do that and their religious rights were upheld over the rights of the animals so that mm-hmm. led to other things but i mean this was this was also a legitimate worry for people that santeria was this evil thing when it, it's not it's it's a perfectly valid religion i mean if you practice it you're not evil it's not but but i think there was a misunderstanding mm-hmm. and this film i mean in in the sense that this this film treats the believers treat santeria as the saviors mm-hmm. they're the ones trying to help it's better than I think other films would have mm-hmm. would have gone. It, I mean, I, I could see how this would be. Well, and the film kind of flits between them. I mean, uh, Jameson gets very mad at his housekeeper when she's practicing her Santeria. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically because he thinks it's the same as the the uh, evil magic, mm-hmm. right? And and there was that, that blurring of lines. It wasn't clear if it was good or bad. Or, well, and, and the I, fact that there were animal sacrifices is, like, scary. And at one point, they undergo a ritual, for a century of ritual involving cutting a head off chicken and mm-hmm. splashing themselves with blood and stuff. Um, and it's... Um, and, and you're really not sure, is this, uh, is this actually helping? Is it just something that's... Well, actually the bad guys are doing and you've kind of like at that point the character uh, motivations are a bit murky and stuff and it's a little shady and it's interesting that both of these religions or both both of these religious practices the santeria and the bad guys there's a, there's a word for it hold on a second <laughs> brugera 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 brugeria brugeria there you go brugeria. we found the word okay um, that these that these two are both engaged in animal sacrifice, I think, mm-hmm. is where the, the line is blurred. And I think that is just thrown in there. While it may be a, a legitimate thing that happens in these religions, it it's so shocking to mainstream audiences yeah. that 
they just conflate the two together yes. and they push it to the side and say, okay, well, anybody who's sacrificing animals is it's bad, bad because that's not something that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something the other does. Yes. And so that's, that's where, um, that's where the film kind of leads you, but it also doesn't help much that again, we don't, and I really wish that I, I, I should watch the film again and see if, if they do say the name, the African country where this guy comes from. Because it would be interesting. I think the link is supposed to be that the the Santeria religion from, in this case, the Cuban community mm-hmm. is mixing with the Roman Catholicism that Dr. Jameson is yeah, fallen out from, yeah, but yeah. that's where his religion comes from. And the African tradition of this bad guy, mm-hmm. right? If that country is is a country where Santeria where the original practices would have come from before mixing with Roman Catholicism. I mean, that that seemed to me the most logical link. But because it's not made clear, I think you're kind of left to interpret that how mm-hmm. you want. And, yeah. and unfortunately, I think a lot of people would necessarily look at that and say, well, you know, it's all bad, mm-hmm. right? Because that's how movies, even to this day, they force you to side with the white guy. <laughs> they force you to yeah. side with the the mainstream, quote-unquote, um, protagonist mm-hmm. and and not consider the other sides of that. What was interesting to me looking up Santeria was the idea that uh, it comes out of... It's a syncretic religion, as Aiden said, and it it's um, in modern times... I mean, syncretic religions go back to ancient times. They probably you've got, all are. They're, they're, they're all syncretic, yeah. In a when, you, when you go into yeah. it and you look back, I mean, there's they, they borrow they and copy and, and reinvent all the time. But the two other modern religions that stuck out like a sore thumb to me are Thelema and Theosophy. Both of those borrow heavily from other traditions and other faith groups and other um, areas of the world. Mm-hmm. So, And those and are both, both yeah. Twin Peaks as of the return. Yeah. Um, they both come in very heavily into Twin Peaks. So um, that was really interesting to yeah, me to yeah. kind of realize that maybe this film might have been something uh, yeah. that, that, that loaned, that, that's something of this film that became loaned into the Twin Peaks canon. Yep. Yep, definitely. For what it's worth. Exactly. And I think it's obvious that um, if you read Secret History and uh, The Final Dossier, uh, Mark Frost is interested in these kind of, of religious approaches. Yeah. You know, a, a more spiritual, less um, top-down, organized. organized religion, right? It, it's more like here's some principles and here's um, some connections to maybe science, maybe uh, mm-hmm. another religion, uh, some history. You know, it, it combines them all into something that has... Um, kind of a new agey appeal is kind of how I always kind yeah. of feel about these kind of religious practices. It's, it's, um, it's, it's not really hard, hard coded and defined. So that means it's, it's more accessible and, and mm-hmm. you can approach it in different ways and still find meaning in it. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, if you're Catholic, you're Catholic. Yeah. yeah you got to do the catechisms. You got to do all this stuff before you can become officially Catholic. It's not like that for any of these. So, so it is, and especially for a writer, if you want to have a mystical element to it, um, having these religions offers much more flexibility in terms of um, your symbolism, your messaging, your uh, the way it interacts with characters. If the magic is real, mm-hmm. um, you know you can you can mold it and flex it a little bit more than you know um, you know Hinduism or Buddhism or something like that. Where where you know it's it's kind of concrete. 
concretely laid out. And it's interesting that you brought that up because uh, David Lynch obviously famously involved with transcendental meditation and that being linked very distinctly with some of those Eastern religions. Mm. Um, I don't think that Mark Frost and David Lynch are miles apart on this when it comes to it, but it seems like this is a very, as you've put it, Frostian approach. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, The way that, that Mark Frost does weave the history and the traditions of these particular faith groups um it's really distinct i don't think david lynch cares so much about that stuff yeah. this is more as we've as said well and and yeah like he believes it and then he uses it to get ideas and mm-hmm. he if it if it comes in it comes in but he's not trying to message it in any yeah. way whereas yeah. i feel like mark frost definitely would and does try to um use it in a way that uh, structures his writing. Yeah. So um, and it gives it's his, different. Well, yeah, and it gives his characters a kind of way of looking at the world. Too, yeah, you know? motivations yeah, and everything. Exactly. I mean, having, you know, uh, Dr. Jameson be a lapsed Catholic and then having him interact with this almost Catholic, quasi-Catholic cult mm-hmm. um, and bringing his son and danger into it. I mean, that really does, it, it and, and for him to be a psychologist on top of all of that, yeah. For his psychology, his, that character's psychology to be so uh, conflicted and wrapped up in all these different areas with something that is so intensely personal, Mm -hmm. that seems like a very Mark Frost touch. Yes, definitely. Absolutely. Which is interesting. I mean, this is not his writing. This is not his book, but I can see why he would be drawn to that. Yeah. And what I think he, yeah, drawn to the project for sure. But then, I mean, obviously he did put his own touch on it. We didn't read the book, so we right. can't say for sure. But um, the book has the same general plot outline, except mm-hmm. for um, he's actually an anthropologist in the in the book, right. not a psychologist. So he's Whereas added in the that film, element. His, his wife is the anthropologist exactly. and he's the psychologist, which is, a, a, I think, a very important touch. Given yeah. what we know about Mark Frost's affinity for psychology, especially when it comes to Dr. Jacoby mm-hmm. and, and how much love and dedication Frost has put into that character, um, you kind of see, not that Dr. Jameson is like, no. you know, Dr. <laughs> Jacoby levels of weird, but there's seeds of the psychology in there. I think that's mm-hmm. the more important thing yeah. about it is just this this linkage of um the linkages through the psychology of the main character mm-hmm. is the most important thing in both of those films. Yep. Um, yeah. More so on on in Scared Stiff with her mental ill health, mm-hmm. right? She's not in the best place, but you still get to see those aspects of her trauma and her um, psychology come out to play throughout her story in a really interesting way. Yep. So as we said, this was 1987 and, uh, you know, a year after Blue Velvet was released, around the time that uh, David Lynch and Mark Frost would have met for the first time. In Mm -hmm. fact, um, there was an interview that I listened to just before recording this. We research right up to the right up to uh, (laughs) live on air time um, where he said he had just finished The Believers when he met. David Lynch for the first time, although he knew, he said he knew as far back as he raised her head that he wanted or that he was going to work with David Lynch at some point. He said he knew that he was going to work with him. But they had just met at this point and uh, were starting work on um, the, the various projects that mm-hmm. would become Twin Peaks, yeah. that, that led to Twin Peaks. So the Marilyn Monroe Project and One Saliva Bubble. Um, so this is this is very 
uh, contemporaneous. We're entering, I guess we can call them the Perry Peaks ears. Mm-hmm. Yes. The ears right around the, yeah. the, the Genesis uh, of Twin Genesis Peaks. Of yeah. Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're just entering them now, which is really cool because I think Blue Velvet being the last film that David Lynch made before Twin Peaks, and then The Believers being the, well, Believers and Scared Stiff being the last projects that Mark Frost worked on before Twin Peaks. And then they start this collaboration together. I think these are these are really important yeah. pieces for them. Well, and really, I mean, if you just put a, if you did the elevator pitch, the Hollywood elevator pitch, it's The Believers and Blue Velvet <laughs> coming together. You basically <laughs> kind of, not really, but sort of wind up in Twin Peaks. Yeah. Uh, and it it's kind of crazy, actually, that we've kind of followed these these paths of these, these uh, creatives. Um, to right arrive here to and, and it really makes sense you're like oh yeah okay I've seen the elements you know Mark Frost had the Hill Street Blues so he's got the he's got the police procedural part down yeah. um, he's done uh, you know uh, bad kind of TV movies um, with these religious mystical elements yeah. and the psychological aspects coming into play we've seen David Lynch work with his surrealist imagery um, moving pictures as art and uh, and his fascination with 1950s Americana mm-hmm. Um, underpinning all of that yeah. and, and the and horrors of, of modern life yes. tinging both. Yeah. So yes, exactly. Coming together, it's it's really cool to see, to finally be at this point mm-hmm. and to be saying, okay, well, here's, I mean, Twin Peaks is, is three years away at this point. Well, less than that because they started working on it, you know, yeah. within the next year, year, year and a half. Year or so, so after this, yeah. Um, so is there anything, Aiden, now that we've got to this point, is there anything that, that, really surprised you about either David Lynch or Mark Frost that you weren't expecting? Um, Mark Frost, uh, to a certain extent, uh, these films in particular, uh, how strong they were in um, in those religious uh, meeting science kind mm-hmm. of conflicts. Um, and you see it all the way through to the secret history where, you know, is it is it this? Is it that? Even to the final dossier, like, is it Bob? Is it the evil that men do? Is, is it, it Beelzebub? Is it Leland? Yeah. Like there are all these different uh, interpretations, and he doesn't want to give an answer. We've always credited David Lynch with being the artsy one who doesn't doesn't want to give the audience an answer because that's that would be un, unfulfilling. But I think Mark Frost not only goes along with it, I think he encourages it. I think mm-hmm. the return finale was not just David Lynch. Yeah. I think you know it was Mark Frost too saying no, no, we've we've given enough pieces here to allow the the viewer to come up with their own interpretation and uh it's it feels just as frosty as it does lynch now at this point that's a really good point and that's almost what i was going to say too is that it's it's uh the influence of mark frost has so is so commonly under um valued underrepresented yeah yeah. under talked about (laughs) Yeah. yeah just because i think people just aren't as familiar with his body of work prior to Twin Peaks mm-hmm. and even post Twin Peaks it's sad that a lot of the stuff that he's worked on is is relatively unknown mm-hmm. compared to David Lynch yeah. um, so that that was something I was really keen to find out more about what what his contributions were and seeing that I mean I kind of always figured especially after reading the secret history of Twin Peaks um, that there was a historical angle that was going to be much stronger mm-hmm. Um, and I think I kind of just figured David Lynch wasn't going to be as interested in that, in the hard facts of the histor- historical yep. era. Uh, so that didn't surprise me so much. But um, but yeah, definitely this this melding of the religious and the scientific, um, which seems like a very modern 
conflict that people mm. are still grappling with. Less so today, but but definitely within the last within the modern era, um, is something definitely attributable to Mark Frost. I also like how much his surrealism yeah. and his knack for surrealism yeah. kind of comes into play. Um, he's not afraid to do a wacky dream sequence, which again is something that we've attributed to David Lynch solely. Um, but clearly, he's not immune to it or no, and, and I think, averse to it. Yeah, and I think the you know obviously Lynch. So in some cases came up with the, the dream sequences of Twin Peaks right. on his own, um, especially the iconic one at the start of the series. But um, the fact that Frost was just like, yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. This is part of the Twin Peaks world yeah. and let's roll with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think he, he does his dream sequences, uh, especially in Scared Stiff, was a bit more literal, a bit more grounded, a bit more of what you expect from a, a dream sequence. And obviously David Lynch provides that extra kick to, to the ones that are in Twin Peaks. Um but the fact that they, they, they do balance out in, in, mm-hmm. in that way. Um, or the fact that they just exist at all in, exactly. in Mark Frost is, yeah. is notable. Yeah. Uh, the other uh, really interesting thing I found is uh, Mark Frost's knack for, for interesting characters, actually. Yeah. Like, uh, there's quite a few of them. I mean, I you were kind of chiding it, but I thought Jimmy Smith did an amazing job of playing this, this cop who's just on the end of his rope. Um, he's really terrified. He winds up stabbing himself in the stomach because there are actually worms or snakes inside of him, um, which is kind of terrifying. Uh, I thought, you know, that was a really well done character. It was it was really cliche. And, you know, he's he is kind of uh, he was kind of a, a stereotype of, you know, the, the Latino. Cuban-American. Yeah, yeah. yeah in, in Spanish Harlem, maybe or something like that. Um but it, it does have enough uh, enough uh, gravitas, enough uh, dyna- dy- dynamism, I guess, to the character that um, it, it comes across in, in, in some later characters. Um, your, your mention of Jacoby, absolutely. Jacoby is obviously a Mark Frost creation. Yeah. Uh, you see him when he first pops up in Twin Peaks. You're like, mm-hmm. oh, no, that guy's a weirdo. He's, he's obviously a Lynch yeah. character. But no, this is, this is a Frost character because yeah. he is concerned about spirituality and and the soul uh and the mind and you know these are the concerns that that frost has obviously been bringing uh for a while now yeah um and then you know his other characters like even a truman is Mm -hmm. you know a solid uh dependable character there's probably a bit of lynch in there too sure um you know uh truman of 50s you know president (laughs) if anything uh but at the same time uh frost has this this way of grounding the characters in something that's believable and makes them appealing. I think that's maybe the, the word that I would use to describe the Mark Frost characters so far is they're, they're appealing. Mm-hmm. Even the ones we meet briefly in The Equalizer or uh, Six Million Dollar Man or a brief Hill Street Blues. Hill Street Blues. Which aren't yeah. all his characters. No, no, but, but the, the ones who just appear for, you know, an episode or two and or yeah. a scene or a couple scenes, you know, they have something to them that that's... Uh, distinguishable and really really fun to watch Mm -hmm. and i think that showed up in twin peaks with amazing aplomb yeah and and not something that people necessarily would give credit to mark frost for Mm -hmm. um which is really kind of now that i've seen it in action in works that have nothing to do with david lynch Mm I'm almost like angry on behalf of Mark Frost that people don't give him more credit Mm -hmm. because it's totally obvious to me which characters have touches of Frost in them. More Frost, yeah. And uh, and even moments like 
uh, when I think back to some of my favorite Mark Frost moments on Hill Street Blues, for example, it's like, you know, the two characters in the bathroom having a heart to heart, you know, that's Cooper and Truman in the hallway, you yeah. know, and Cooper tweaking Truman's nose. Yeah. I mean, which was improvised. No, on set, yeah, but, script, but still, but. I, it's like it's it's not something that's completely removed from from Mark Frost's wheelhouse that mm-hmm. it, it couldn't be. It yeah, couldn't have part, been written by him, exactly. you know, right into the script, which is really cool. And and something that uh, I'm definitely going to be watching Twin Peaks with a different through a different lens now that mm-hmm. I've watched the pre Twin Peaks stuff that Mark Frost has done, um, which is I mean, there, there's so many, so many things in day to day life. Every time I watch Twin Peaks, I have a new perspective on something. And there are so many invitations to dive in deeper with that show so it's not unheard of that you would have this, but I feel like this is a totally different angle than um, I think most people would approach it with. Mm-hmm. So I, I think if you've been watching along with us as we've been going through these films, especially Mark Frost's contributions, um, I think we should all go back and watch Twin Peaks and see what what new things we've discovered. Um I also just want to say Mark Frost does have a cameo in The Believers. Yes. And where is, is it? Cool. In the locker room. In the locker room of the room police of station. The police station. <laughs> That's where he likes to be. Which is very, great. I guess, yeah. Uh... <laughs> hey, man, all those episodes had scenes where the men were crying <laughs> in the locker room. It's just where men cry, apparently. I in guess the 80s. so. That's just, so. it was the only acceptable place for men mm. to cry was in the bathroom. So that, that was great. We're like, hey, it's Mark Frost. Yeah. There, so, yeah. Well, you knew coming into it. That's you were true. Like, yeah, you I did read Guy in Locker Room. Guy in Locker Room. Credit. Wait a minute. Does that mean he's good? Yeah. So <laughs> he either plays a guy in Locker Room or Cyril Pons. Cyril Pons. <laughs> I think those are his only screen credits, as far as we know. Um, but yeah. So what are we up to next? We are going to, well, we're starting our Perry Peaks uh, section here. Yeah. So next we are going to do One Saliva Bubble. Yes, which will be really interesting. I read it previously for kind of an abandoned project I was going to work on with John Bernardi. Um, but he got me interested in it and I read it a couple, maybe a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you haven't read it yet. I haven't read it yet, so I will read it. Um, but I do think there are a lot of really interesting things that will come out of that conversation relating directly to the return. And I can't wait to talk about it with you. Okay. Um, because I think that that'll be that'll be really fun. Um, and then after that, we may do a separate episode on American Chronicles, which is actually the third Lynch Frost production um, from Lynch Frost Productions. <laughs> uh, besides Twin Peaks and On the Air, which we've previously done. Uh, they did do a short-lived, I think it was 10 episodes or 7 episodes But or what something. kind of show was it, Aiden? <laughs> it is, I guess you could call it a documentary. It is a bunch of images and then a voice <laughs> occasionally talking about America. And that's kind of it. Um, I've watched about 20 minutes of the first episode and it is it is bizarre um it's not even on youtube i think we had to scour the internet to find uh versions of this thing um and it's yeah it's very odd we we may do that as a like a maybe a short brief 20 minute episode or something like that um and then yeah we're gonna that that'll be take us through into the post twin peaks but before that before we get to the post-peak stuff, mm-hmm. I think uh, it would be worth mentioning um, a special interview we have lined up with uh, Andrew from 25 Years Later site, um, talking about the site and the fans and what keeps Twin Peaks going. So in place of our Twin Peaks, where Twin Peaks would sit in the chronology of Bickering Peaks, look back at Mark Frost and David Lynch's careers, we will have... 
25 years later site and Andrew uh, who is editor-in-chief of mm-hmm. the magazine, my boss. Yep. So um, look for that in the coming weeks. But as we said, uh, two weeks from now, we will have One Saliva Bubble Up and then this fascinating documentary series. So I can't wait to watch those. I don't know about you, Aiden, but I'm really looking forward to a David Lynch documentary. Yeah, me too. That'll be fun. <laughs> I'll say. If you're enjoying the show and want to join the conversation, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash bickeringpeaks, all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter, that's at bickeringpeaks. Or you can head over to iTunes and leave us a review or comment. We'd love to hear from you.